0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Uh, I'm here today joined by my co-host, Tony Shang, who writes at TonyShang.com, is a head of product at Decentraland, advisor to Token Daily, and is a village global network leader, among the many other things. That's that's, that's, that's quite quite a lot. Um, And we're joined today by uh, Jill Carlson and and Lulu. Guys, can you introduce yourselves?
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us on, Eric. So my name is Jill Carlson. I work as a consultant to many projects in the space, ranging from big institutions like the IMF, to token projects, protocol projects, uh, like Ccash and several others.
2: I'm Lily Yu. Uh Most recently, I was the founder and CFO of Earn.com. Uh, I sold that to um, Coinbase earlier this year. Uh, and now I spend a lot of my time in crypto, working with different projects, uh, and also doing some investing in the space.
0: Cool. And i like to start our episodes by asking our guests, what is uh, what is most top of mind to you right now in the crypto space? Where are you spending most of your time thinking about <laughs>
2: Um, Yeah, so I've been, this is Lily, I've been spending um, a bit of my time really understanding how, you know, folks outside of the US are thinking about blockchain and uh, developing blockchain projects um, and, you know, how they see the future of blockchain evolving. Um, So I've been spending quite a bit of time um, with, you know, folks from, from Asia who are thinking about that.
1: And I've been thinking a lot about what it's going to take to make these protocols and these products actually useful to end users. Um, So one project that is near and dear to my heart in particular that I've been working on is how we can bring cryptocurrency uh, to places like Venezuela that are suffering from hyperinflation and humanitarian crises that go along with that. And it turns out that actually a lot of the protocols and products as they exist today are really not fit for purpose uh, for, for kind of your average citizen of the world um, to use. So thinking about and doing research along those lines and trying to work in that direction so that one day we can all actually be using cryptocurrency.
3: So I, I know we uh, originally signed up to talk about business models and for token projects, but I, I'm really curious about both those topics. Maybe we could spend a little bit of time on on each of those. Um, Lily, curious what you're seeing in Asia. Like, What are your takeaways from that so far?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, my original motivation is actually very similar to what Jill was just saying, which is that um, you know we've got um, a lot of obviously a lot of interest in crypto these days, and a lot of sort of projections about how this is going to be used. Um, but really, from an adoption perspective, we're you know really just at the beginning. And so, if you think about the number of people who have who own some some degree of or some sort of cryptocurrency and some amount it's probably in the mid to maybe high five figures if you think about that from an overall adoption standpoint that's not terribly impressive first of all and then second of all if you see what people are using that for and so you know let's say you want to look at it from a perspective of you know share of your day right or share of your spending share of your wallet from any of those um, from any of those metrics adoption is really not so great and you know you know thus far I think you um, if you consider speculation a use case, then that's really where most of the energy is and, you know, various forms of that. So, you know, if, if this is going to be useful to folks, right, how do we build that path from here to people, you know, using it on, a, let's just even say a daily basis. And, uh, and you know, in, in this market, there's been a lot of emphasis on technical approaches to scalability, Right. Um, and so new technical solutions to increasing throughput, decreasing time to finality, um, various approaches like that and sort of, and no longer requiring that every node sort of do the same computation, right? Things like that to aid in scalability, which is, which is super important. Um, in, you know, a lot of really interesting experimentation going on across the various projects. But what I, what I think is also interesting is, you know, from the other perspective, the attitude or the perspective I've come across from folks in Asia is that, well, you know, you can scale through technology, but you have no users, right? Another way to think about scalability is you drop blockchain in where you already have skill and you already have users. And yes, it's going to be a little bit more centralized from day one, but that's okay. And you kind of go figure it out from there. So instead of sort of building a general use platform and then sort of bring on developers who then develop something for the users, the perspective I sort of discover is that people really think about it from actually going, starting on the other end of the spectrum, Right. Which I think which I think is interesting. And what I also think is interesting about that is, um, you know, it's an approach that we actually can't really take in, in this market here in the US, right? One of those reasons is really just for regulatory reasons, which is that, you know, about a year ago, there was some interest in the idea that there would be utility token, right? Mm-hmm. And that it wouldn't be that it would sort of that there was a channel for that outside of you know the Howey test and 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 other kind of regulatory frameworks. But as those have developed, it seems that the kind of passage for that um, is relatively uh, narrow and relatively small. And so, therefore, much of the uh, innovation in uh, the U.S. market is really going to be for accredited investors, because I think it's fairly clear, you know, I'm I'm not an expert on regulation necessarily myself, but I think it's fairly clear that this this whole accredited versus unaccredited investor framework is going to remain, right? Which means that in the world of cryptocurrency, you can't really sell those tokens to unaccredited investors or 95% of the US population. And increasingly, There seems to be clarity that giving it away in the form of airdrop is also sort of in gray area and has some risk attached to it. Right. So if you can't sell it and you can't give it away to 95 percent of the U.S. population, well, then consumer adoption of blockchains can be pretty darn difficult. Whereas the perspective um, in international markets is uh, a little bit different. Right. And, uh, so therefore, I think that a number of the consumer adoption efforts around blockchain are going to, by necessity, take out, to, uh, take place outside of the US. You know, they, they're probably going to start off as being fairly centralized. They're probably going to start off, um, being, you know, focused around existing platforms, existing markets and sort of, you know, maybe an incremental step in, in the blockchain direction from how existing platforms work. But I think that, uh, over time, that's where a lot of that kind of consumer adoption of blockchain innovation is going to happen.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. I was in Asia for about a month earlier this year and met with a bunch of uh, crypto developers in China uh, and game developers that were experimenting with crypto and totally saw the same thing. They're experimenting at a way faster rate of like, how do we just leverage an existing install base or existing distribution channels and get these coins or non vengible tokens into the hands of users? But it, it seems like they have their own regulatory limitations are at least like, you know, plenty of gray areas in Asia as well. Are there regions or specific use cases that you're, you expect there to be earlier adoption and, you know, less gray areas?
2: Um, So I think to oversimplify a little bit, I think that protocol level and platform kind of like the technical innovation is likely to happen in uh, Western markets because there's first of all, a lot of energy for that. And, you know, a very ample supply of, of talent and technical talent around that as well as just kind of the interest. Um, I think the business model innovation is likely to come out of places like China, Korea, to an extent Japan. However, you're right. Uh, they do have their own regulatory challenges because, you know, as we all know, ICOs are, are largely impermissible in China. And Korea also has sort of a somewhat skeptical approach towards them. So therefore, the business models are likely to happen there. But then what's interesting is, you know, all these Chinese companies they set up foundations in Singapore. So they're just, they're going to ex- experiment, so to speak, with Southeast Asian markets and to an extent, African markets and perhaps Latin American markets as well. So therefore you kind of have this, like in terms of, in terms of, you know, development or, or adoption stack, if you will, you've got technical in the West, you've got business model in kind of East Asia, and then you've got the sort of adoption layer potentially
1: in, uh, in other parts of the developing world. It's interesting to think about that stack and, what the feedback loop of innovation will have to be because I mean, just in, in the work I've been doing recently and I touched upon this earlier, something I've discovered is that very few of these protocols are being built and designed with end users or a business model in mind. And I can't help but wonder if, if there's a disconnect between where and how the protocol innovation is happening from where and how the business model innovation is happening, if that could create some tension or, or problems or a disconnect mm-hmm. down the line.
3: P- people that maybe maybe aren't like in the weeds with crypto yet, uh, it might not be obvious where the distinction is between protocol innovation and a business model. Yeah, If you're just getting into it, you see some prices, and you know, you, you might assume that protocol innovation leads to higher prices, which obviously more complex than that. Could you just kind of tease apart what you mean when you say protocol innovation and what you mean by business model and uh, maybe give an example of how there might be a disconnect there?
1: Yeah, sure. So so the way that I tend to break down kind of the crypto stack is at the base layer, you have the protocol, which very high level, you know, all the word protocol means is just rule set that everyone agrees upon and abides by. It's kind of an underlying system. So the way that Bitcoin works, you know, parts of the protocol include, public and private key signatures includes a proof of work, you know, consensus mechanism. It has all of these components that are shared across many other protocols like Ethereum, although they might be switching to proof of stake for civil resistance. And, you know, there are all of these technical decisions get made that are deep, deep under the hood. And that's, that's the protocol layer. Then you also have in some cases a sort of platform layer. And what I mean by this is, a space that is geared towards developers to be able to build and innovate using that underlying rule set or using that underlying protocol. So Ethereum is kind of the canonical example of this uh, when it comes to the crypto space of you know, Ethereum is an underlying protocol but ethereum plus solidity or the the language that gets used to write smart contracts in ethereum that creates a really nice developer platform that you know now thousands of people if not into the hundreds of thousands around the world have used to build their own products and that brings us to the top of the technology stack which is the actual product the end user product that gets used by the people who to whom it's adding some value, hopefully. So, you know, in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a protocol, as I mentioned. It's not a great developer platform, although I have plenty of acquaintances and friends and people I respect in, in the space who would disagree with me and and are building very interesting things with it. And And it is also actually an end-user product. It is a form of digital or electronic cash. Ethereum, similarly is a protocol it is also a product because it's a speculative instrument it can be used as digital cash or digital investment and it's also as i mentioned a developer protocol so you can you can see how these things all kind of relate to each other and how there need to be i think as there does in any technology space where you have sort of this stack that you're dealing with a relationship between the products that are maybe getting monetized or that are geared towards everyday use by sort of, you know, your average citizen in the world, or perhaps only geared towards use by, you know, certain subsets of that. There needs to be some feedback loop from the end users and the products getting developed and what the protocol can enable. So that's that's what I mean by that when I talk about it.
3: That's really interesting. So like to just give an example, say somebody's using augur, some front end to augur and making like participating in some prediction market. You are are you saying that you know, maybe those users of augur and even the developers of that front end of augur their observations or needs aren't necessarily getting fed back into the work of core protocol development on Ethereum or other base layers?
1: So I That's that's right. That's the risk that I'm identifying and and speaking to here. I think that in the case of Augur, I think in all likelihood, you know, the Ethereum community closely watches that project and they are probably taking into account and integrating, you know, what feedback they're getting from that system. But I would turn to CryptoKitties as another really good example of this, right, where we have this end user product, this CryptoKitties product that... If you go back to, I think it was in December or January, but correct me if I'm wrong, it got so much hype and attention and, and usage. It, it still was not sort of to the point of mainstream usage in terms of numbers of daily active users, et cetera, that tech companies generally hope for. But it got to the point of usage where it was starting to cause problems at the protocol layer where... Uh, the Ethereum mempool was getting clogged up where gas prices were exploding. And and so that's a really good example, I think, of where there needs to be at least some communication feedback loop. And again, this is an instance where I'm sure Ethereum developers, you know, took note of what was going on with CryptoKitties and are now integrating that into their roadmap and into their understanding of the feasibility of, of what is possible today with the protocol and what needs to happen in the future. But, you know, especially where I start to think about what Lily was speaking to, you know, what's going on in China and if there's a lot of experimentation around end-user products and and uh, business models and usability of these things going on in China, but, you know, a lot of the development of these protocols is taking place in silicon valley or berlin or you know wherever else i at least personally know very few entrepreneurs and developers and so on in silicon valley who have a really tight relationship with folks innovating at the product level in china And so, you know, it's not to say that this is some intractable problem. It's not to say that this is a problem that is new in any way or hasn't been tackled in other areas of technology. But I, I do think that it's an interesting dynamic, at least, to watch.
2: Right. And if we think about, you know, even before Ethereum came on stage, if I'm allowed to say something a little bit controversial you sort of observed that happening with Bitcoin, right? Remember back in 2015, 2016, a lot of people wanted to build all sorts of stuff on Bitcoin which was a much smaller community. And um, and it was pretty clear that uh, it was going to be very difficult to scale that. And that resulted in a, you know, two-year-long discussion back and forth between various folks in the community about, and essentially, you know, one way of thinking about that is it was um, a debate between folks who were very focused on the kind of technical merits and purity of, of the project and folks who just wanted to be, you know, more broadly useful. And so I think that, you know, we've seen that uh, tension between sort of, let's say, protocol, platform and product levels for several years now. And it's, you know, probably going to be continue. It's going to continue to be, you know, sorted out and mediated in different ways. But what I think you also see is some folks that I've spoken to you know, they say, okay, well, you know, my current option set is I've got Ethereum and I've got EOS, right? Ethereum, very, very clear. I can launch an ERC20 token. That's a, you know, well trodden path at this point. And, you know, EOS is more scalable, sure. But, you know, if you just give me another six to nine months, right, I can bootstrap on Ethereum and then just go launch my own blockchain. And so I also wonder if, Maybe the vision of thousands of blockchains and, you know, thousands of very purpose built blockchains, which, you know, could be specific to a single application or, you know, maybe a bundle of applications more where uh, the ecosystem is headed, in which case the interoperability of those, you know, thousands of blockchains is, is really critical. Right. So, you know, maybe the single, you know, general use smart contracts platform, maybe that's not, not how it's going to end up. I don't know.
3: Empirically, we've seen some of this uh, on both sides. I guess, like we've seen a lot of projects try to bootstrap on Ethereum and then launch their own chain. It's hard to tell where projects really right. needed that and where they were just wanted their own right. chain because it might justify a higher valuation. But I, I guess, like there are trade-offs galore here. Um, what's what's good about this from a developer perspective? Uh, you know, a future where most developers with a good relationship with users and have a clear product launch their own chain, and what what do they lose?
1: Well, it's the ability to own their entire roadmap, right? You know, it's a big problem that I think that a lot of developers in the space face currently, or at least they tell me so. I, I'm not myself a developer, so I would be remiss to speak on their behalf. That, you know, they, they have this great product roadmap, maybe, but they know that there are all kinds of dependencies of, oh, well, you know, once once ethereum ships proof of stake or once sharding is implemented or you know once we have you know w- whatever it is around scalability or privacy you know these kind of hot topics then we'll be able to really take our product to the next level and you know today they they have those dependencies and so when i look at it from you know an investing perspective or whatever it might be if you're betting on a project that is launching a product on ethereum or on EOS or on Tezos or whatever it is, it's a twofold bet, right? You're betting both on that product team, but you're also betting that the underlying protocol team is going to deliver on their roadmap, which, you know, is is often a prerequisite for the product to exist in in its final form.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. You kinda like as a as a project on top of Ethereum or some other chain you inherit. The security of that chain, but then you also inherit the risk of their roadmap.
1: Exactly, it's all trade-offs. It's all trade-offs. There are no easy answers to this.
3: So, um, so then, wh- wh- where do we go? Like, as as actors in this space, uh, wh- what's what do you think is most likely to occur? Who's impacted? How they how should they position themselves for these dynamics playing out?
1: Asking the big questions, Tony. <laughs> I want to know the
3: future no,
1: Tell easy me. Answers to that one yeah. you
3: might
1: have <laughs> asked us where is bitcoin going to close on been. yeah i think that, that would have been preferable <laughs>
3: well, well i guess maybe i'll get i'll get more like specific lily mm-hmm. you mentioned maybe interoperability is going to play a big role and driven by you know the benefits of and maybe the increasing ease of projects being able to roll their own chains that they can control and set the parameters of and uh, you know, So they, they can avoid the risk of the roadmap of the, the chain that they're, they would have built on otherwise. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel like that needs to happen in a world where there's some interoperability protocol that allows all these apps to talk to each other? Do you think they can all just happen independently and then you just basically have apps the way that we have apps now? there where there's no really like shared tissue or do you think maybe it could all occur on like plasma sidechains because on plasma sidechains you can can do a lot of configuration and avoid some of the 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 bottlenecks on on the main chain of ethereum
2: i mean i do think that there is going to have to be some interoperability between uh, these various tokens because you know if you are going to make this a a friendly user experience for folks um, at least for me, it would be difficult for me to imagine a world where every app I open, I kind of have like a different currency, you know, because then I would have to know that, you know, token A is worth 10 cents today, five cents tomorrow. And then, you know, token B, when I open the other app on my phone or on what, whichever interface it's going to be, it's, you know, worth a dollar today and dollar 10 tomorrow. That's a lot to keep, uh, that's a lot to keep track of. Um, and I think that if there is monetary value attached to these tokens, that's something that people will inherently want to keep track of, right? So I think you have to start to abstract some of that away. Otherwise, it, it makes it, uh, it just has a lot of cognitive load to use, right? And consumer experience is one where you've got to make your consumers happy no matter what, right? It's kind of like on Tinder, whether you swipe left or swipe right, you're happy no matter what, right? Swipe left, Speak and you for think, yourself. Oh, I'm rejecting someone else, like I'm in in—I'm in charge here, and if you swipe right, then uh, you think like there's opportunity to get a match, right? So no matter what, you're great. Lily, when's the last time you use Tinder?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is
2: theoretical um, because, well, I'm married. <laughs> but uh, this is like a very simple example, right? And so you got to, consumer experience has to be something where uh, kind of like every, every, you know, incremental action is, creates happiness. Um, and that was something that we sort of learned um, through Earn, where it wasn't obvious at first, but... What we realized is because we were allowing people to monetize something they never were able to monetize before, they were willing to actually like relatively important people were willing to do things for relatively little money, which was surprising, first of all. And then, uh, you know, we oftentimes got asked, "Why don't you just have a point system? Why does it have to be crypto?" Well, the reason why it had to be crypto was, you know, one just was logist- logistically you can pay out anyone anywhere in the world, but then also. Uh, it was like found money for people. So if the price was up, people were ecstatic. If the price was down, people are like, you know, that's cool anyways, because it was free money to start with. And so that was one thing we realized that we sort of created a system where basically everyone is happy all the time. Right. And I think you've got to create something like that uh, in these eventual user experiences.
3: That, that's interesting. I, I That's a fascinating way to frame product development. I'm trying to relate it to what we were talking about with the product versus protocol dynamics. Do you feel like a product team creating their own blockchain has a higher likelihood of being able to create an app that has consistent happiness across all the actions because they have more control over the entire stack?
2: I think it's possible. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the, at least for me, one of the open questions that I'm interested in seeing how it's going to play out over the next, I would say 12 to 18 months. And, you know, some of them will do well. Some of them, uh, won't do well. And, uh, you know, there's equally an argument that even if they do very well, they don't have kind of that truly broad platform that brings on hundreds of millions of users, right? Because by definition, they're sort of focused on a certain vertical. But then, you know, the, the counterpoint that I sometimes hear is, well, you know, we want to be a protocol for, you know, all sharing economy or something like that. Now, now, obviously, I see that as being a little bit dubious because what's going to, you know, what would, if Uber does a protocol, what would prompt Airbnb to go, you know, adopt their coin rather than doing their own, right? Mm-hmm, so I think right. that's potentially where where that type of thinking falls down a little bit. Because ultimately, in that vision of the world, what it is, is the token is really just uh, an extension of your app, right? It's really just part of your app. So, you know, we'll see. But what I think, um, you know, a conversation I was having earlier today, which I thought was potentially interesting, is that, you know, in the existing business models out there, there's a potential that something like a sharing economy actually is uh, is well-oriented towards tokenization, right? Because in a sharing economy, you know, very distinct from let's say in an email, a world of email or sort of information exchange, you actually have like a two-way value exchange, right? You've got the center, which is, you know, the, the network operator, call that Uber or, or an Airbnb, but then all the various nodes in that network, um, they can both, because they're it's a marketplace, right? They can both sort of buy and sell, if you will. Um, and because you have that potential sort of two-way relationship with every node in the network or the, the, the potential for it, then, you know, potentially a token, that value of exchange has a role in sort of helping, um, helping add new features to that network. So that's, you know, one thesis out there uh, that we were contemplating earlier today. So, you know, it's interesting to see whether something like that has okay, Let's
3: Okay, um, let's shift gears a little bit to business models. How do you guys, what do you guys think about business models in, in crypto? It's a pretty hotly debated topic.
1: Yeah, I mean, the big question, right, is where value is going to accrue. You know, whether that's to, again, the protocols, there's this idea out there of the fat protocol theory, which basically states that all of the value in the space will accrue to those mechanisms that are deep under the hood, as I mentioned. And that would be you know, a thesis that would state that it's better to invest in Bitcoin than it is to invest in Coinbase from a returns perspective, or it's better to invest in Ethereum than it is to invest in the product that is built on top of it. Now, I mean, this theory has somewhat fallen out of favor recently, it it would seem if you listen to kind of a lot of the talking heads in the space. Myself, I guess, being one of them, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of that idea because ultimately you need end user demand to create any kind of value whatsoever. And that value may trickle down the stack to the protocol. But if you don't have users, then you don't have demand. And if you don't have demand, then you ultimately don't have value. Now, the question again becomes for things like tokens, things like utility tokens, does does value accrue to them? Does it accrue to the underlying protocol if those tokens can, in fact, get users themselves? And, you know, what what is the best investment from, of course, the investor or buyer's perspective, but also what, what is, as you say, the business model for these projects? You know, many of them don't have revenue models. Many of them intentionally don't have revenue models. Most of them are just sitting on... A massive amount of their own token and hoping and working towards those tokens appreciating in value so that they can then sell them off and continue to be successful this is basically what ethereum did right with with the ethereum foundation and you know that's that's worked out quite well but especially as there is more and more talk that we're entering a bear market for the record i don't actually think that this is a bear market yet Mm -hmm. i think we're just getting started um You know, if we do enter a bear market, then, you know, the token, the token price of some of these projects is going to continue to plummet. And what happens then? What happens to the project then? And what does the future look like? Do they need to find ways to generate cash flow? Uh, Can they continue to just sit on these tokens? These are all big open Somewhat scary questions. You know, I'll give one brief perspective though, which is that if I was running a project, and and I say this to most projects I work with, you're doubling down on exposure to yourself if you are if you are you know token project ABC and your entire treasury is in ABC tokens. You know, that's you you have exposure to yourself just by virtue of being the project and working at the project. And then also you have all of your cash sitting in that token and that is just really poor risk management. It could work out really well, but you know, standard portfolio theory would have you diversify that into cash. You know, if you look at any other early stage startup, they're not sitting on just their own equity. They're sitting on cash that they've raised from investors.
2: Yeah. That is a very good point. Mm -hmm. I'm so back to one of the earlier questions you had, Tony, which is um, around, uh, you know, which of these um, products are, or how, how are the products who are building their own protocols going to fare? I mean, I think that um, what I'm curious, you know, how it's going to evolve is if uh, the, the most highly valued ERC20 token out there is the is BNB, right? The Binance Coin. Um and so I'm curious how that one is going to evolve because that is a token which is very is which is very clearly tied to a business and an application, right? And a very specific use case. If they do launch their own chain, uh, then I think you know, we'll see how that's I, I think that's gonna be a very interesting use case to see how you migrate from ERC twenty token to your own your own protocol, your own platform, and how you build an ecosystem around that.
3: Yeah. The BNB is um behaves kind of like pseudo equity in its current format. And do you know if it's going to behave similarly even after they launch the chain? Is it going to be like all of the properties of the pseudo equity stuff plus now they have their own chain?
2: That uh, that I don't know. You know, I think the way they, the way they've managed it so far um, fits very well for their business model and for their for their core business, right? And I think that it's fair to say that uh, their tokenization from day one has served them very well. So I think that's going to be Kind of like a bellwether for how this kind of theory that we've talked about really for a year now around how tokenization creates a new set of incentives that can incentivize consumers and sort of create this better than free business model, right? That's been a lot of the the theory around it, and I think that might be one one you know like real world uh, use case that's worth tracking.
3: Yeah, what, what's the like what's the taxonomy that you guys use to describe these different business models? Like some people would call BNB a discount token what are the other ones and what even do you agree with that label for bnb
1: so i'm i'm less familiar with sort of the inner workings of of bnb so I, i might leave that one to lily to come back to but you know probably i tend to categorize things as either a currency like a fully decentralized cryptocurrency or a token and then within tokens you have utility tokens that I would say are like file coins, you know, things that you need to use to access the product or the network. You have basically securities tokens. My lawyer friends will probably not be pleased because of course there are many nuances to what constitutes a security, but you know, things that give you exposure to the upside of the project. And then you have sort of a hodgepodge of uh, a long tail of, I would say actually more interesting tokens that serve some mechanism design f- function in the protocol themselves. I would put Augur, for example, in that category. And and that's, that's basically how I high level tend to categorize them. I guess, gun to my head, knowing what I know, I would put BNB then kind of in the securities token category. Although... Again, I think I, almost everybody would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I realize that's yeah. I, I don't know enough about sort of what the legal ramifications of that are. So I am not a lawyer. Everyone should do their own research. That's my disclaimer there. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: what, what? And I know, Jill, you, you've worked with Xerox in the past. Their are their there are governance token. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about that actually as I was speaking. That's that's another one. That's another category: governance tokens. So I've talked to Will Warren a decent amount about, you know, governance token, what 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 zero X is and how value might accrue to it. And his take, uh, that I find very compelling and, and quite convincing is that Governance is one of these things that's easy to sort of hand wave at and say, you know, oh, it's it's not necessary. It's not clear that it's going to accrue value when push has not yet come to shove on a given upgrade or a given fork to the protocol. But it's in those moments where a decision needs to be made. You know, as Lily pointed out, look at the the Bitcoin debate around SegWit and SegWit 2X and whatever that raged for multiple years. Look at the Ethereum hard fork. Imagine if the Ethereum ecosystem was what it was, what it is today when that happened back in 2016. You know, and so I think that there is a compelling argument to be made that that governance tokens will become very valuable. I, I view it more as, you know, the same way that shareholder voting stock has has value over just pure equity in in many cases when it comes to looking at you know actual old school companies but i i think it's an it's an open question still right you know that's part of the beauty of all of this is it's still just a big experiment
3: yeah totally so what what given given the the way that you guys think about business models for token projects like what uh what are your favorites and what's bunk and maybe, like what even is like unexplored territory if there is any?
2: I think that one unexplored idea is everyone has a personal token. You tokenize human beings. I think that uh, you know some people have talked about, oh, you know what if I could, um, instead of taking out a loan for college, I could sell some of my future earnings, right? So that idea has been around for a while. That's one of the you know obvious things you could do with a personal token, but then there's all sorts of other things you could do with personal tokens, um, and I think that's one area that um, Probably going to get explored in the next couple of years. With
1: I don't know about you, Lily, but my head immediately goes towards dystopia when I hear that. Exactly. <laughs> like, I think it is indentured servitude on the blockchain. What have oh, we done? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can think about it in
2: terms of, oh gosh, I'm indebted to uh, my friends forever, or people who you know paid for some textbooks or something like that. But then I think there's all sorts of interesting things that can happen with that, mm, and it could go in a dystopian uh, direction. It could also go in a more positive
0: direction. Can, can you draw that out, Lily? Like, what what are some other examples of... Like, I get the, you know, the, the college example or, or even, like, the, the developer boot camp example, but, like, what what are some other examples?
2: Yeah. So that's fairly mundane. Uh, but then what you could also do is, you know, if I have a personal token, let's say I'm a celebrity or something like that. Um, I have a personal token, but then I can also issue my, you know, NFTs. So, for example, if you're Kim Kardashian to commemorate, to commemorate uh, the birth of your... You know, first child or something like that, right? Um, and you can sort of create a market in those personal collectibles. Um, so I think that's something that also is like a uh, an incremental improvement upon you know how people already use the internet. And uh, and I think that would actually be pretty popular, right? But then I think um, if you go beyond that, you can essentially have people um, gambling on one of the on one another's futures, right? That's another way of you can if you think about sort of. On Twitter or something, there is kind of this invisible rising and falling of your reputational stock, right, on Twitter, um, based on the proxy for that is likes and retweets. And to an extent, there's a little bit of a currency, right, because it's quantifiable. If you put a token in there, it's like in your face quantifiable, right? And it's a monetary metric. And I think that's where it starts to get a little bit dystopian. But it's kind of like a, it's like an extension of what we already do on social media, right? It's
1: like that Black Mirror episode where everyone has their rating that's public, right? And it's a, I mean, I guess this is already happening in parts of China, et cetera. You know, you can speak more to that where it's like a combination of your credit score, your sort of social ranking. Mm -hmm. It'll combine in like, you know, what your Uber rating is for all the Uber rides you've taken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You know,
2: we already kind of do that with businesses. Um and uh yeah, so with um with a token you can basically TCR Jill, and TCR me. The,
1: the, <laughs> so the meaning of life then becomes <laughs> delivering token value to the Jill coin shareholders. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. That's my mandate. But, <laughs> right. I, I mean I think that uh before that,
2: actually the, the original kind of um idea of oh, you know, I get a share of your future revenue. I actually think that's much further off because in order for that that to happen you'd actually, you'd have to have like very deep tokenization of like the entire economy, right? In order to, uh, if I would have to, you would have to have all of your revenue and all of your costs all on the blockchain, um, some shielded, some not in order for me to programmatically get a cut of that, right? And that's actually quite a bit, quite a ways off. Like having been a CFO in the past, I can tell you a lot of the, you know, (laughs) inner workings of how people get paid or don't is highly manual. So that's like, I mean, that's, you know, generation off um, at least. So in the meantime, I think it's more going to be um, on this kind of like a consumer Think about gaming, right? Think about gaming, you know, of social media. I think you could hurt a lot of feelings doing that too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, just to play that out for one, like the idea of having equity in another person, it brings up all these dystopian you know, views uh, and like, or even just being aligned in revenues is like not the exact alignment, but the idea of, I mean, we, we do it you know, we make token investments in in people's projects because we want to support them. We want, we want to be aligned with them long-term. And if you think about like, bear with me for a second. If you think about like, you know, a family as like, you have genetic, you have sort of like a certain level of equity is not the right term, but some level of uh, incentive alignment with, with people, with your family, with your siblings and with your family, and you know, some of it is biological, some of it is is sociocultural take, there's like wide swaths of society who don't have that, who don't have, um you know, uh, uh, people who have means, who have uh, incentive alignment, like take homeless people in San Francisco, for example. Uh, And let's just say for assumptions that uh, there's, you know, nobody um, who's incentivized from a genetic or uh, economic perspective to support them. Could you envision that like people having tokens uh, of, of, of other people as a way to incentivize them to like, you're giving them sort of a cultural reason to... To care? I, I, I don't know if I'm...
2: Yeah, that might actually be a little interesting because uh, you're right, right now the, you know, people had very big families once upon a time because that was your support network and that was your, you know, it was your support network you were born into, you either had it or you didn't, right? So if you're lucky enough to be in a healthy family of like, you know, 10 kids or something like that, you had um, people to turn to really at, at every turn and I'm sure that life got complicated at times with all those, inter- those relationships, but generally you're probably better off than if you just had one sibling, right? day you know have maybe one or two siblings generally speaking in the west and if something happens a support network like that's a little bit difficult right but if you can at at fragments in time incentivize someone to uh to help you out maybe that is a maybe that is a different way of having i don't want to call it security but having just more options
1: i don't know i think that there <laughs> yeah i don't know this this whole we're trying area. to put a silver lining on it eric yeah. yeah this area kind of <laughs> scares the crap out of me, to be totally honest with you. I think that you get into all kinds of, like, I feel like I'm back in my freshman year philosophy <laughs> and ethics class right now. <laughs> I'm, yeah. like trying to think through all the eventualities of creating this new form of debt, basically. And I, I think that I have no doubt that there are ways that you could come up with that that could draw good social good out of it but i can think of a lot more off the top of my head <laughs> that just create all kinds but, of problems
0: yes yeah, so, uh i'll just uh, harp one one more thought of this the make school model make schools university where you only pay back if you make a over like 100k so it there's no debt like zero it's only in a case of upside so i, I think there have to be some similar and yeah it, it, similar thing here. there would have
1: to be yeah there would have to be all kinds of frameworks and cultural norms in place around it where no harm, no foul, if you don't pay back. But I think that those would be wicked hard to create.
2: Um, Yeah, you know, uh, and then also just having consideration that you'd have to have enough of the economy on a blockchain so you can kind of self-honored all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know,
0: I think I like the idea a little bit more than Jill does. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I Eric, you like that idea a little
0: bit more than Jill does. Yeah, I, I like it only to the, to the extent that is there if there is a way to get people to care about other people who right now don't have anyone else caring about them. Yeah, um, that's interesting.
2: Yeah.
3: Be- before you start this, let me know so I can contact a good market maker. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh,
1: so you know, I, I think okay. So I think <laughs> though that we've you know we're exploring kind of the edges here, which I think is very interesting and. On one edge, that we've identified is like individuals issuing their own tokens. Like every human being on the planet has a tokenized version of themselves, whether that's some form of like debt or their cash flows or whatever it is, future cash flows, future earnings. On the other end, something that, you know, I know that Lily's thought about too, and that I think about a lot is when you start to have state actors issuing these tokens. And and I think it's really interesting to explore kind of both of those edges as science fiction as they may feel right now. You know, we have Venezuela having already issued their own cryptocurrency which now actually their currency is in name anyway pegged to it, no one is really certain what that means. Um and then you have Iran announcing that they're exploring issuing their own currency, also to, you know, presumably to evade U.S. sanctions. You have North Korea announcing that they're that mining, right? Yeah, that yeah. they're mining and that they're hosting some big blockchain conference. <laughs> Will not be attending. Yeah, I, I couldn't
3: get an invite. My t-shirt, right?
1: That's right. <laughs> I hadn't actually even put that together. Of course, yeah. he did. Yeah. So, you know, there's some relations. And as you can tell, my mind tends to go very dystopian very quickly. I think right. that I read too many cyberpunk novels as as a teenager. But, uh, well, I, you
2: know, I, 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 uh, I thought about this as well. Uh, like
1: when you're talking about kind of exploring the edges and this
2: could be, you know, from Eric's perspective, potentially good. You know, if you do an individual token and you get more people to potentially care about one another. And on the other hand, right, Jill, you have a little bit more dystopian view. But they're, they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. I think that's actually generally true about washing technology as well, right? Because the the original inspiration for many of us, um, at least in this kind of in this market to get into crypto, was to some extent you had to buy into this kind of like crypto libertarian or techno libertarian kind of uh, you know view of the world, right? And I think that that's what inspired a lot of the people who bought into it originally. Is you think okay, this is going to empower individuals? This gives you sort of a hedge against the monopoly of the nation state. And while that's incredibly important, right? It absolutely is. Using more privacy, more control, more you know, economic liberty, all these sorts of things. But then, if you think about it, um, it's really just an agnostic uh, technology. In certain parts of the world, you know, sophisticated governments can even use this to increase surveillance, right? Increase kind of granular control about who can do what. So now, Jill can transfer money, but I can't, right? And you know, if you think about identity on a blockchain, um, yes, there's many efforts to develop identity on a blockchain. But really, you know, identity, um, ident- new new sort of forms of identity are incentivized either by the carrot or the stick, right? The carrot is the Facebook or the Google version, which is I like, give you something really compelling, which is free, and you spend a lot of time doing it and eventually you get into an identity, right? The stick form of it is, well, you know, you've got my passport and if you want to keep that passport and not go to jail, well then do this, right? And so if I think about which countries can have the ability to basically throw identity in, uh, onto a blockchain relatively quickly, um, I mean, there's like potentially more of 1.3 billion people that can go do that. And so, if that's the case, then you know you can actually envision some of the same aspects of this of this technology being used to achieve you know really the opposite you know goals and actually you know per- perhaps uh, empowering um, authoritarian states versus the original sort of vision of this, which was to sort of provide a hedge to it.
3: So what uh, that that's really fascinating. I think the other side of the applications of blockchains as Tools that enhance the authoritarian power of states is not very frequently discussed. But in your view, what's like what's at stake here? I f- I think a you know my immediate reaction is if uh, authoritarian state wants to behave like this, they have many options to do it. And if they use the blockchain, then you know it's really not that different. They might just be able to do a few worse things than they were in the past, and Potentially, the uh, citizens could continue to use things that they don't have the that the government doesn't have control over, like they could hold Bitcoin, for example. Is there some kind of like second order effect that is more worrisome? Like if this form of blockchain technology that is under the control of authoritarian states takes hold, it subverts the adoption of like actually censorship resistant and tamper resistant monies? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that it does is, you know, right now we kind of have a, a largely, you know, like vertical sense of of nationhood and belonging, right? And so you kind of generally, most people in the world, they kind of feel some allegiance to the passport that they hold or passports that they hold. Um, and increasingly, I think that, you know, what you just brought up, if that becomes true, then you start to get, you know, within, let's say, a nation-state community, you get a number of people who actually feel maybe stronger allegiance to, let's just say, a public blockchain-based community, Right. Um, And so you start to have these horizontal allegiances. And so to an extent, it still does, you know, start to take allegiance, just uh, disassociate allegiance from kind of from land mass continuity. Right. Um, So I think that's one thing which is going to be interesting to see exactly how that how that pans out. So I still do see that tension developing between people's kind of like, you know, physical and digital allegiances. But uh, I actually do think that um, the kind of sovereign coin is going to be a much bigger element in uh, like kind of the five year perspective on blockchain than, you know, it's currently envisioned.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would totally agree with that. I think that we're going to see more and more of this trend of sovereign states issuing their own cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And I think that the big risk there is, you know, Tony, you rightly bring up like, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Like, you know, If people still want to be operating outside of the system, they'll still have Bitcoin and other actually decentralized cryptocurrencies. My fear is basically one that exists around the branding of the technology in general. And we have this tendency to talk about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and so on as trustless. They're anonymous, they're trustless. You hear this in the mainstream media all the time. And the reality is, is nothing in this world is trustless. It's a very attractive idea that, you know, all humans find very interesting and compelling. No one wants to trust anyone, right? We don't want to trust our banks. We don't want to trust our partners or our boyfriends or our girlfriends. We don't want to have to trust our parents. We don't have to trust our governments or other big institutions. So we're enamored of this idea that something can exist and be trustless. Bitcoin is not trustless. You're trusting that at least 51% of the miners on the network are acting honestly. But that's a big mouthful for the mainstream media to say, and it doesn't win hearts and minds quite as easily. So my fear is that as we have more state actors or even more companies look at like Facebook getting into the game, Mm -hmm. you know, other other companies and even projects that might claim to be decentralized, you know, you really have to look under the hood to get a good understanding of what. The possible attack vectors are. And so my fear, again, to bring, bring it back full circle to what's the problem with sovereign entities issuing cryptocurrencies, the problem is that they are issuing things that the media and the general public are coming to believe are trustless. And people tend not to think through all of the implications of, well, you know, okay, Venezuela's issued a cryptocurrency, but it's a cryptocurrency, right? So it's decentralized, it's trustless, it's that's got to mean it's anonymous. It, it's none of those things, but people love the narrative and they love the story around it. And and they'll just take whatever they're sort of fed without examining it further. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me is is the big risk
2: yeah. happening uh, is... You know, because uh, you've got to live as a human being, you've got to live on land somewhere, like you have a physical presence somewhere. So you've, oh, so that's, you know, I think relatively non-negotiable. And uh, so maybe what you have is you have a bifurcation and the same way that you know, even today you can have multiple passports, you have a sort of uh, terrestrial identity and then you also have a, a digital identity and you can have different personas for those two, Right. And so maybe you just start to see more of a diversification of um, people's time and energy and also economic activity being divided between those, uh, between those, those spheres and increasingly sort of being moving towards the more digital sphere. If you have, you know, truly really public blockchain. So, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a power balance between those two, but I think that is going to be, um, like one important axis of the power balance. And so, you know, uh, so sometimes when, when people talk about you know public versus private blockchain, that to me is really not the not the spectrum um, or the the dichotomy that is really critical here. Because to me, private blockchain is a sort of like you know twenty year enterprise endeavor of um, bringing more efficiency to companies' backends, right? Very valuable, going to bring a lot of value to business. But ultimately, I think it's really public blockchains versus sovereign uh, sovereign blockchain, which is going to be uh, uh, is it, it, really the, kind of the interesting
3: economy here. Yeah. I and mean, if I were, if I were to synthesize a takeaway from um, your comments, Jill, and then yours, Lily, you know, if you imagine a terrestrial and a digital economy or identity, one of the risks here is that if a lot of sovereigns are starting to issue cryptocurrencies and there's this kind of um, cloud around what things actually mean in the crypto space, then sovereigns might have a really good shot at Invading the this horizontal digital space with things that aren't really trust minimized or censorship resistant.
2: Yes, absolutely, um, absolutely, and I also think that sovereign coins um, can further empower a nation state, right? So if you think about, you know, let's just take uh, the example of China, um, and so one of the trade offs they they've had to make with RB is, um, in order to have a little bit more stability at home. Uh, they have very tight control of the monetary policy, right? They allow it to sort, it's not exactly fixed, but it's kind of, you know, fixed within a floating band. And so what that means is that they've invested heavily into their international sort of spheres of influence by, you know, 20 years ago, investing in Africa and then Latin America and now in Central Asia and then even into Europe, right? And, uh, and then certainly Southeast Asia as well. So they've invested a lot in sort of um bringing uh building bridges between the chinese economy and those various economies because uh the rmb they sort of have to you know uh keep a fairly tight control on it it uh, doesn't have the potential to be sort of a reserve currency quite in the same way that the us uh the USC is right now although it is probably a close challenger so uh, but then if you if they can have fine, more fine grained controls, they can basically retain that control at home, which is to say, you know, Lily and Jill, a Chinese citizen, you can only transfer X amount of money, then all of the trading partners go to town. Right. And so that's one of the things that it, it starts to give you sort of just finer levers over uh, over different kind of aspects of your of your empire, if you will. So that's just one kind of one one thought or one example.
3: That seems not negative for the average person. Uh- would you agree with that? And if so, what, do we have any agency here? Like, is there something that people should be doing to Um, prepare a better future?
2: um, I don't think it's it's not necessarily negative for um, the average person, but um, it does. If something like that becomes true, then it um, points to a certain shift in, you know, current geopolitics, right? Uh, It also points to uh, a future where, You know what was envisioned as being, you know, a a bulwark against the dominance of the nation state might not actually come to fruition, and uh, and I think that's that that really is TBD. I I guess what I'm saying is it really could actually enable activity in the opposite direction. Right.
3: Yeah. Co-opting the the language of the cypherpunk movement seems like maybe one of the most effective things that nation states could do to shut it down. (laughs) My my main takeaway here.
2: Uh, Yeah. And I already kind of get a sense of of nudge, nudge, wink, wink as well, or people are like, okay, you know, so I've, I've got to say, you know, it's decentralized. And then, and there's a number of people who really see that as very effective marketing. Like, great. I can play that game.
0: It's sort of like Facebook co-opting the time well-spent movement. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Right. That's exactly right, right? There's, um, there's certain folks out there that um, are very used to this, you know, I say one thing, and then I do another, right? I can talk the game about, you know, inclusiveness or, or uh, decentralization or whatever. But ultimately, I think one of the realities that the token economy has, on one hand, very rightly revealed is that incentive alignment or appealing to human greed is a very powerful and <laughs> Uh, Very powerful, very effective, and very straightforward way of of aligning individuals, right? (laughs) And that's right. And I think that's also true when you think about how people sort of talk and act um, when it comes to decentralization, centralization sort of rhetoric.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you uh, guys about was just to get your opinions of the sort of crypto investing with crypto VC, crypto hedge fund, uh, just sort of landscape. You see a lot of funds coming in now. And a lot of people are, you know, questioning things like, you know, how are you differentiated given sort of that there's, you know, there's been a lot of funds already for, that have um, have advantage advantages, and then also like, how are you going to, you know, because they're denominated against Bitcoin, how are you going to compete with, with, with Bitcoin? What's your sort of perception on sort of the overall landscape and and thoughts on on funds that are, you know, just coming in now or just starting now?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I was just saying the lily, actually, before we started the call, I think that there's something in the water the last month or so where it seems like everyone has gotten the idea back in their head to uh, start a crypto fund. There was around, I guess, in sort of November, December, where it felt like everyone was doing this. And then just recently as well. You know, I think that one thing is that the valuations are starting to look a little bit more sane than they were certainly in December, January, even February. So I think that that is Attractive to people, certainly also, you know, the sort of private market, pre sale, SAFT, whatever the model du jour is, those valuations are also starting to finally look a little bit more sane too. There's a long period of disconnect between the retracement that had happened in the likes of Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, while you still had projects trying to fundraise at you know multi hundred million dollar valuations pre technology so that was a little bit scary so i think that you know you're right there there's a new sort of round of these emerging i think that how they differentiate themselves you know will obviously vary from fund to fund but part of the fun of all of it is it's it's a big experiment right you know no one no one has done this really before. The longest that the crypto funds have existed has really just been the last three plus years, right? Three, four years. And you know, you have some that are pure venture plays, how they deal with their token management once these things become liquid remains to be seen. You have others that are pure hedge fund plays where they're only dealing in very liquid tokens. And then you have this whole big sort of hybrid in the middle, and and then you also have the angel community investing in a lot of these projects too, and they play a very big role um, in the whole ecosystem. So that's how I tend to kind of map it out. I think that there are pros and cons to every strategy. I think the strategy that I am most convinced by at the moment is the more VC style approach. I think that if you're going to take the hedge fund approach, you have to feel very confident in. Your trading abilities, your ability to read sentiment, um, your ability to risk manage, and also just your informational advantage in this market. And that's a lot for anyone to keep track of. I'm sure that there are those who can do it well, though.
2: Yeah. So I think that we're certainly, we certainly experienced uh, a correction since December. I, I still think that um, over a several year perspective, we're still in the whole market period because we're seeing higher highs and higher lows. Um, even though we're currently on a low. and uh, you know in terms of you know investing strategy, I think you know question is always on what time frame, right? Um if you're looking for something which is which you can sort of set it and forget it for five to ten years in crypto, you know I think it's hard to look really beyond uh, beyond uh, beyond Bitcoin. And so if you're presuming that you're investing on sort of traditional venture timelines, then I think that's one perspective. Um I personally think that what is Uh, really amazing in cryptos you have um, 24 7 markets highly fragmented because there's you know constantly rotating set of exchanges um, that you can trade on and then you also have constantly new assets which are being uh, which are being uh, onboarded onto those exchanges right so given all of that and plus you have you know decent to very good apis into all of those exchanges it's a trader's dream, and so You know, if you take a hedge fund approach uh, uh, to this, I think quant trading could actually be from a kind of risk reward profile, a highly profitable area to be in.
0: Joe, Joe, what do you what do you think about that? I've heard you know both optimistic and and dubious takes on like people who are either starting quant funds or trying to do algorithmic trading in at crypto. And and because you worked at Goldman, I'll just assume you you know everything there is to know about all elements of finance. (laughs) Oh Uh, God.
1: (laughs) So I just just to be clear, I was a credit trader. I didn't touch a quant system once in the time I was there. My managers, I'm sure, are thankful for that. so i I don't know as much about the quant trading world. What I understand from friends who dabble in the space and you know people who have attempted sort of the quant uh, side of things in crypto is that, The infrastructure and the market structure make it really difficult to make a lot of money because you are contending with fees, you're moving things across different exchanges. Um, The quality of the APIs in many cases uh, leaves a lot to be desired in terms of uh, timing and, and ability to get sort of best execution the fact that when you take profits you have to take profits into tether or some other stable coin there are all of these dynamics that that make it really hard to make a lot of money now that having been said there is also still a lot of arbitrage opportunity right across different pricing on different exchanges you know a lot of this has not been shrunk to zero yet as it has in more advanced markets. So I don't have a strong view on what the trade-offs are or what the outcome is of those trade-offs, but I, I guess that's what I would say about the uh, upsides and downsides of trying to go about that approach.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, there have been some um, some funds are starting to sort of dabble in mining or, or finding other ways to participate uh, in networks more more directly. I'm curious if given your sort of you know, twenty-one days. If you have a, a view on that, that's an interesting uh, strategy. And I guess broadly, I a question. You know, final question for both of you is: Would you ever yourself either start or join a like you know full-time investing vehicle, or do you think that there are other ways to you know create and capture value in the space that you think are preferable and more lucrative? To
2: I think that proof of work is uh, going to be very relevant and centrally relevant still for uh, a few years, right? If you just look at the percentage of the total market, which is based on proof of work of some sort. And so I think that um, uh, if that's the case, then there might be some space in the market where you can try to be early on-chain within UASIC. Uh, so I know that that's the strategies that, that some people are trying. You know, As a side note, I think that um, one of the kind of assumptions that people now make or associations that ASIC equals centralization and GPU equals de- decentralization is, I think, a little bit of a misnomer. I think that GPUs, if you look at different parts of the supply chain, are equally centralized, or it's basically an oligopoly at each of those steps. And so I think that, uh, just a side note, I think that, um, I don't think that GPUs equals decentralization. I think that there's basically different ASIC models that, um, the, the community can sort of together invest in in order to achieve a little bit more sort of distribution of hash rate. So, uh, I think that's potentially interesting. What I think you need is you need, um, you know, just a multitude of, of capable players that can develop very meaningful, you know, uh, chips to, to compete on those of work algorithms. So, uh, possibly.
1: And then as to your other question about, you know, how compelling is it to be investing in the space, whether that's in kind of a full-time capacity or, you know, dabbling sort of on the side, I'm not going to make any predictions about my own sort of career moves, (laughs) at least not, not in this forum, but you know, I I will say that I think that what I said earlier about why there is suddenly another proliferation of funds coming about. I, I think that there are good reasons for it. I think that now is probably a pretty compelling time to be, Deploying capital in the market, and you know, I'm not. I'm really not one to be shilling or pumping cryptocurrency in general or any specific token. But I, I do, you know, for myself and and for you know, kind of institutional investors, etc. I do think that it's an interesting time. If I look back at sort of the last bull market run, which was you know right around the time that I first got into Bitcoin, which was in sort of mid to late 2013. If you look at then the following summer after that in 2014, that's when the Ethereum presale happened, right? And um you know, I think that we're starting to see and we'll continue to see opportunities as the market continues to correct from its state of overhype uh that we experienced last winter that may be the next Ethereum presale
0: so I think that's a that's a great way to close guys thank you this has been a fantastic episode where can people uh, learn more about you uh, online and uh, and feel free to plug anything you have uh, you have upcoming
1: yeah you can find me on Twitter at underscore Jill Ruth that's my middle name Ruth Uh, that's basically the only thing that I check regularly I definitely get a lot of angry people in my in mail (laughs) saying why you know why have you not responded I'm I want you to advise my token. Right. Well,
2: so, they should just uh, contact you through EARN. EARN, exactly. <laughs> exactly. On Twitter, I'm not terribly active on Twitter, but I do log in every so often. I'm A C-A-L-I-L-Y-L-I-U. That's not Lucy Liu. And EARN. They can surely contact you on Yeah, that's
0: right. That's right. And also be found there. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. This has been great. Thanks, Eric. Bye. Take care. Bye.